Hello, and welcome to Mixed DNA Podcast, the podcast with two mixed race hosts talking about any and everything. Each week, we pick a topic, do some research, throw in our own thoughts and opinions and experiences, and put everything together to share with all of you. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Melissa. Today's episode, episode number 71, is Mixed DNA and Controversial Romance. There are, of course, many different types of relationships over the course of a person's life, like friendships and platonic relationships, family relationships and work relationships. But today we want to focus on quote unquote romantic ones because there are different kinds of romantic relationships, many of which from a Westerner's perspective are controversial. What do we mean by that exactly? Well, on this side of the world, the standard type or the most accepted type of romantic relationship is the monogamous relationship where two people meet, they fall in love, start a life together, and so continues their life. In different parts of the world, marriages and relationships can look different. They can start differently, and the standard relationship we in Western cultures are familiar with, and from this side of the world, we can frown on anything we don't see as normal. From arranged marriages to bigamy to polygamy or polyamory, there are all types of romantic relationships, and we'll look and explore at some of those today, even though some situations make Vanessa and I uncomfortable. We'll look into different parts of the world and where what we consider to be unorthodox relationships are happening to this day. Romantic relationships are those characterized by feelings of love and attraction for someone else. While romantic love can vary, it often involves feelings of infatuation, intimacy, and commitment. Romantic relationships can burn hot in the beginning, while the initial feelings of passion usually lessen in strength over time. Feelings of trust, emotional intimacy, and commitment grow stronger. Most of that definition, which we found on Very Well Mind, seems like it only fits with a monogamous relationship, but some of it also fits within different contexts. Monogamy is a form of dyadic relationship in which an individual only has one partner at a time. This includes the state of having only one mate at a time. A monogamous relationship can be sexual or emotional, but it's usually both. The word monogamy derives from the Greek monos, meaning alone, and gamos, meaning marriage. Researchers have a hard time understanding how monogamy started, because since the dawn of time, according to anthropologists anyway, 85% of human societies have permitted polygamy or polyamory. The modern monogamous culture has been around for just about 1,000 years, says Kit Opie, an evolutionary anthropologist from University College, London. Opie describes how the earliest primates, as early as 75 million years ago, were solitary and preferred to live in isolation. The adults would only come together to mate. As time evolved and primates, like baboons and chimps, continued to mate with multiple individuals in their groups, humans shifted in the other direction, in what current theories suggest is due to the preservation of an individual's health and their offspring. One theory suggests that as populations and groups grew from the hundreds to the thousands, the spread of contagious diseases most likely was a strong influence in sticking with only one partner. As societies evolved, the rates of STDs would have been large enough that infertility from infections like syphilis, chlamydia, and gonorrhea would have been high. Therefore, monogamy would be advantageous for males who required offspring, and STDs would have been seen as a form of punishment for those who were polygamous. Another theory is that larger societies, more powerful ones, wanted to preserve their wealth through marriage. In this respect, though, monogamy is a marriage system, not a mating system. And yet another, more dark theories, 
is infanticide. As primates became more developed and their brain capacity grew, babies' brains' capacities also grew, and they required more of their mother's attention, meaning that females were less readily available to mate again after giving birth. Opie says that basically men were sitting around waiting to mate, so it would therefore be beneficial for the men to kill the infant so he could mate again. The fathers that wanted their offspring to survive would nurture and protect their families by pairing up with the mother. These are all, of course, just theories, and without the use of a time machine, we'll never really know why. In comparison to other animal species, there are only 10% of mammals that form exclusive sexual relationships. Even in societies where polygamy is permitted, monogamy is by far the most common human mating arrangement. Humans are imperfect, though, and people have affairs, get divorced, and in some cultures, marry multiple mates. We'll take a look at some of those cultures today. According to Scientific American, polygamy appears in most of the world's societies, even as a minority arrangement. Polygamy is the practice of marrying multiple spouses. When a woman is married to more than one husband at a time, this is called polyandry. Polygamy involves at least three individuals, a person married to two different spouses. But there is no limit to how many spouses a person in this type of relationship may have. While polygamy is legal or discouraged in many places, it isn't explicitly unlawful like bigamy, which is when a person who's already married marries another person who does not know that they are already married. Bigamy is pretty much the ultimate betrayal a spouse can commit. Best-selling author Adele Parks did research for bigamy early last year for a new novel she was writing, and what she learned was shocking. She went directly to the source for her info, as she wanted the real character in her novel, a woman who was secretly married to two men, to be as honest and real as possible. Parks reported to express.co.uk that statistics reveal men as three times more likely to be prosecuted for bigamy in the UK. But it's not an exclusively male domain, as most would think. She also noted that the spectrum of who a bigamist was was nothing specific. There were both regularly employed individuals and patchy employed individuals. And they came from all fields, bus drivers, police officers, soldiers, doctors, and even biochemists. She said that the only thing her research samples had in common was the fact that they had created chaos and they had difficulty accepting what they had done. One couple she spoke with, Monica and Simon, their story started blissfully, but ended in shock and heartache. Simon had falsified evidence to say his first marriage was invalid so he could marry Monica. When she had caught on to his deception, he had said he had done so because he loved Monica so much. When you enter into a relationship in a lie, coming back from that lie is very difficult. Technically, Simon denied Monica a choice, most likely because if she had known he was married already, she wouldn't have wanted to marry him. But it doesn't necessarily mean she wouldn't want to continue to have a relationship with him, or marry him, I guess, but we'll never know now. In the UK, some 70 people on average are charged with bigamy every year. Let's get this episode back on track to polygamy, shall we? In the US, polygamy is often associated with the Latter-day Saints Church, those who primarily belong to the religious tradition of Mormonism. In 1852, the LDS Church made the practice of men having multiple wives, which they referred to as a plural marriage, part of their official church doctrine. However, in 1882, the Edmonds Act officially made the practice illegal in the U.S., 
and in 1890, Wilford Woodruff, the then prophet of the LDS Church, announced that the church was officially abandoning the practice. While polygamy is illegal in the U.S., it is common knowledge that it is still practiced by fundamentalist Mormon groups, many of which live in the Western United States. Prior to today's episode, I would hear the word Mormon and white people just pop into my head. That stereotype is one that I've learned from TV and the media, but I was curious about other races and ethnicities within their religious institution. Actually, when I lived in Japan, one of the guys I knew there, who had already been living there for several years once I had got there, was once upon a time a Mormon, and he was from Utah, which, as we all know, is prime Mormon location. He actually went to Japan on one of like their missions. I think that's what they call it. So when boys or men age 19 to 26, they go on a mission to concentrate two years of their life to quote unquote the sacred service. Where they go is up to the church. So my friend, who shall remain nameless, uh, he did his mission in Japan and he never left. Uh, he met a girl, he knocked her up, and he, he stayed. So he's still there to this day. He owns a bar and an English school now. Uh, anyway, the whole point of uh, this trip down memory lane is because my friend is not white. He is mixed, uh, half Filipino, half Samoan. That's very interesting. It is because he's actually the only... No, I know another Mormon. I worked with a Mormon lady. Hmm. I don't know any Mormons. She was the first Mormon I ever, I ever met. She always had to wear sleeves. And I remember her daughter was getting married... And they're having a hard time finding a wedding dress with sleeve. This was like a long time ago. Within a Mormonist's history is the concept of whiteness as godliness and purity. In an interview on The Atlantic with Max Perry Mueller, a historian at the University of Nebraska, he argues that Mormonism is quintessentially an American religion. He says that issues of Christianity are often seen as linear, marching toward a certain direction. But that's not how history, especially theological history, works. The kind of white supremacy that's at the heart of a lot of Mormon history and the contemporary church that rejects white supremacy both embody the same space. Even though there is this torrid racial history within the religious practice, not all members are white. And while the LDS and the FLDS maintain their separations, it's hard for people to mentally separate the two. So... Fundamentalist Mormons are practicing plural marriages right in the U.S. and Canada. But where else in the world is this happening? Polygamy is common in much of Africa, the Middle East, and parts of Southeast Asia. The morality and societal worth of polygamy are fiercely debated. Westerners, like FLDS, often maintain that households with more parental contributors can create a richer and more stable family life for their children. However, opponents argue that polygamy is exploitative and founded upon the mistaken belief that women are inherently less worthy than men, and that those who promote polygamy tend to be those most likely to benefit from perpetuating said belief. The World Population Review reports that religious views on polygamy come into play for many cultures whose strict religious beliefs remain common practice for many. Buddhists regard marriage as a secular affair rather than a sacrament. As such, each Buddhist county has its own stance on polygamy. For example, Thailand legally recognized polygamy in 1955, whereas Myanmar outlawed it in 2015. Under the banner of Christianity, the Lutheran Church accepts polygamists 
and the Anglican community ruled in 1988 that polygamy was permissible under some circumstances. Hindu law allows polygamy with certain perimeters, like if a wife couldn't bear a son. Islam endorses polygamy as verse 3, if the surah for Anisa declares that a man may marry up to four women under specific and debited circumstances. In observance of this text, many Muslim countries allow a man to have up to four wives. However, many also require that a man is to state, whether he plans to be monogamous or polygamous, as a part of the marriage agreement to his first wife, and if she disallows it, he cannot marry another. Polyandry in Muslim countries is strictly prohibited. For Judaism, many prominent Jewish leaders, including Abraham, David, and Jacob, have been described as having plural marriages. Modern Judaism has disavowed the practice. In countries like India, Malaysia, the Philippines, and Singapore, governments recognize polygamous marriages, but only for Muslims. In Australia, polygamous marriage is outlawed, but polygamous relationships are common within some indigenous Australian communities. In some African countries, polygamy is illegal under civil law, but still allowed through customary laws in which acts that have traditionally been accepted by a particular culture are considered legally permissible. This arguably confusing loophole results in two types of marriages, civil marriages and customary or religious ones, which enables countries like Liberia, Malawi, and Sierra Leone to allow and even support polygamous marriage without officially recognizing them, like a loophole. A full list of countries, legality of polygamy, and what's allowed and what's not allowed can be found at the World Population Review. We figured it would be most eye-opening for these different types of relationships if we shared some case studies or personal stories of people in these types of situations. The first one we want to share is one we found at Compassion Stories. Jumbe Araya Kilindiwa lives in a remote part of Tanzania with two wives and nine children. The area has four small villages, which are home to many Maasai people who work the land. Jumbe, age 38, is a traditional Maasai man. His home is a small thatched hut with no windows, but is stocked with firewood and holding pens for the family's many goats. The hut has two bedrooms, one for the children, who are aged between 1 to 18 years of age, and the other bedroom for the parents. Jumbe had the opportunity to attend school and therefore he can speak Swahili fluently. His two wives cannot. And for the interview with Compassion Stories, they used an interpreter. Jumbe's first wife is 30 years old, and they have five kids. Jumbe then took another wife, a younger wife, and had four more children. As a peasant farmer and a pastoralist, Jumbe owns five acres of land, and during a good farming season, he can harvest up to 30 bags of maize. But when the weather is bad, he gets much less, meaning periods of hunger for the family. Jumbe says that they have had periods where they face sickness and hunger. During these times, he says he makes extra effort to look for food for his family, and sometimes he is away for months, and asks the neighbors to look in on his family and to give him a bill when he gets back for their trouble. Polygamy is embedded into the fabric of the Maasai culture. It is tied to the economy. A man with one wife can never acquire the wealth and status associated with a hundred cows, for it's the wives and children who take care of the animals. Secondly, polygamy carries a social function as it enables men to gain prestige in society 
And thirdly, it carries a function for women. An unmarried woman does not have a recognized status in society. For her, the stigma of remaining single disappears when she joins another union. Another story we wanted to share was that of Hassan, a 32-year-old British Muslim and a polygamist. He tells Tim Dowling at The Guardian that he is getting a niqab for his soon-to-be third wife. She doesn't wear one yet, but his other two wives do. Hassan's third wedding was to be a low-key affair. He wouldn't invite his other two wives because even though they are accepting of polygamy, you don't want to rub it in their faces. After Hassan wed wife number three, she obediently donned her niqab in what Hassan said he compares to a car. Some people cover their cars in a similar way. My wife is being covered as protection for me. The wedding night rolled around, and in sticking to the strict wife rotation, Hassan spent the night with one of his other wives instead of the new wife. In a story from ABC News from 2011, Joe Darger and his three wives, Alina and twins Vicky and Valerie, and their 24 children say they are like any American family, except for their family structure. Joe said that polygamy goes back six generations in his family. More than 20 years ago, Joe married wives Alina and Vicky on the same day. Joe and Alina share seven children, and Joe and Vicky share eight. In the year 2000, Joe married Vicky's twin sister Valerie, and they had four children, not to mention the already five kids Valerie had from a previous marriage. Between them, this blended family has one husband and father, three wives, and the responsibility of 11 boys and 13 girls. The Dargers spend up to $700 a week on groceries, and everyone is required to pitch in around the house. By the age of 10, kids start doing their own laundry and take on other household responsibilities to keep the well-oiled machine of a family running. With four parents, three spouses, three master bedrooms, and two dozen children, there are many challenges. The women admit to jealousy because it's part of human nature, but they're still able to lean on one another for support and dig deeper into their faith. The wives do admit that each of their individual relationships with Joe is a private one, though. The Darger family is quite interesting, actually. They have a memoir titled Love Times Three, Our True Story of a Polygamous Marriage. And they also say that they are the family that inspired HBO's hit show Big Love, which aired for five seasons from 2006 to 2011. Did you ever watch that show? I did not. I did. But it opened my eyes to, like, why people are in these types of situations. Like, not to say all people are, but how the dynamic of their family was quite interesting. I don't want to ruin it for anyone who still needs or who wants to watch the series, but it is a good show. Yeah, I don't, I don't really like or agree with polygamy. How I feel or see it is a man wanting all his needs met while women think it's something they want. And hey, maybe they do. I can't say that they don't. But when the woman, when the first wife, second wife get older, she gets, you know, pushed to the back for a younger new wife, you know, so she can have children and so on and so forth. Are there any women that have this many men in their life doing the same things like that she needs? Does she have a husband and then like a boyfriend and then like a side piece and they all live in the same house? Like, is that something that some women do? I don't, I don't know. Maybe somewhere, but if the man wants kids and she does too, is she just going to be pregnant for her whole life for these three men? That sounds terrible. Um, it's not something I could do with the men or with the wives. I can't do either. Um, I listened to a podcast once where someone interviewed a couple in a polygamous relationship and they had pages of rules to follow. So 
they wanted to be in this kind of relationship, so they decided to write a list of rules before going into it. So they both can have a boyfriend or a girlfriend um, while the couple is married or like the primary. But they didn't, like it was hard when they found out that either one of them fell in love with their boyfriend or girlfriend, which, I mean, I don't know how their emotions work, but that seems like it would happen more than it wouldn't happen, you know? So if the husband falls in love and you don't vice versa, then what happens then? And where does this stem from? Like not wanting to be tied down, as they say, which I mean you are, and to more than one person, are you not? If you want to have sex with other people, who says you can't? But then it makes sense to be alone. I don't know. This is how I see it. It could be very wrong. I myself would never be emotionally strong to be in such a relationship, but I can see why some people would. And by those people, I mean people that would choose to be in these types of relationships, whether it's for religion or for the culture that they were raised in. What I don't condone is children that are forced into plural marriages when they're not old enough to decide on things like this. But that's like a whole other episode. I did watch the entire series of Big Love, that series, that HBO series that I just mentioned, and I quite enjoyed it. But I do remember like while watching, it, I was thinking it's so strange that these women could live this lifestyle and be okay with it. But each woman, like, okay, a little bit about the show without too much spoilerage, but like each of the three wives on that show were so different from each other um, that they each brought something different to the family dynamic. And the reason they had become a polygamous family was because so the husband on the show was raised in in that environment, but he didn't love it. So when he married his first wife, that's it. He was set to be like a one one and done kind of thing. But then she got really sick and she was like in I think it was cancer. Um, And then she was in remission and it was her decision that they try to because she was worried the kids and her husband wouldn't be okay on their own if something happened to her so she if I remember correctly I mean the show's pretty old they went out of their way together to find wife number two to help with the household things because she was really sick and she was in bed all the time Um, but wife number two was like it's an actress I don't like so the whole character just bothered me because I don't like the actress (laughs) um And then eventually, I don't remember why they brought in wife number three, but wife number three, I did like wife number three. She was my favorite wife, actually. There are two series on TLC about polygamous relationships. There is Seeking Sister Wives, and there is also Seeking Brother Husband. One of the families on the series is Dimitri Snowden and his wife, Ashley. Initially, they attempt to court a potential second wife, Josephine. But that falls apart, and in season two, they are also unlucky with a woman named Vanessa, not me. When Dimitri and Ashley met, he told her from the beginning that he wanted to have more than one wife. In an interview with Distractify, he tells them, When people think polygamy, they think Mormon. They think Utah. We're not Mormon, and we don't live in Utah, and we're people of color. He goes on to say that he wants a noisy house, babies everywhere, and that he just wants an epically big family. In fact, Dimitri wants nine kids. He and Ashley already have three. Dimitri owns an IT company. He is an autological architect who uses AI to better understand the world around us. By the end of the third season of the show, their sister wife, Crystalyn Peterson, came forward with abuse allegations against the Stoning couple. Shortly after that, Ashley announced that she had left Dimitri in 2021. 
A year later, they decided to give their relationship another try. And what they say is them leaning onto their faith and to bring them back together. In another type of relationship, we have the arranged marriage, which is a type of marital union where the bride and groom are primarily selected by individuals other than the couple themselves, particularly by family members such as the parents or grandparents. In some cultures, a professional matchmaker may be used to find a spouse for a person of marrying age. Brides Magazine estimates that over half of marriages worldwide are arranged, and although people think of these arrangements like a relic of a bygone era, they are still surprisingly popular. Over 20 million arranged marriage unions exist in the world today, and while the divorce rate for standard meet-and-fall-in-love marriages is around 40 to 50 percent, the divorce rate for arranged marriages is only 4 percent. In India, where it is estimated that 90 percent of marriages are arranged, the divorce rate is only 1 percent. While family influence is still the major player in modern arranged marriages, there are now modern ways these marriages are formed. There are websites, many of them, shadi.com, indiamatrimony.com, and punjabimatrimony.com, just to name a few. People are no longer showing up to the altar and meeting their spouse for the first time. There's much more free choice now. Pamela Reagan, a professor at Cal State, tells The Knot, people are saying, I'm willing to let my parents find someone, but if I don't like them, I have the right to say no. This is not only the case in the West, where immigrant parents have children more resistant to the arrangement, but in certain parts of the world where arranged marriages are still popular, circles are moving toward giving their children more and more say in their partners. With arranged marriage, though, there are many cases of forced marriages, like this one that I want to share from a story we read on Toronto Life. It's a pretty lengthy story, we're warning you now, but it's a great first-person story of her experience that we really wanted to share. All Maria Malik wanted was to be a normal Toronto teenager, but when she was 17, her parents brought her to Pakistan and married her off to her cousin. Maria was born in 1987 in the Sergota, Pakistan, in the same city where her parents met and wed in arranged marriage the previous year. When she was five years old, her father got a job at a clothing factory in Montreal, and four years later, he was able to sponsor Maria and her mother to join him. After her parents had two more kids, the family moved to Toronto, where it would be easier to deal with their shaky English than their non-existent French, and where her father believed there was good money to be made driving taxicabs. The family lived in St. Jamestown, that's the Wellesleyan Parliament area for those who are familiar with Toronto, where school was close by and Maria joined every sports team she could, baseball, basketball, and track and field. As the eldest child in the family, she was expected to come home right after school to help with chores and her siblings, but that was never the case, until she gave in to her parents' wishes and quit all the sports teams. Maria was content helping her mother, but says she was also motivated by fear as her and her siblings were afraid of their father. He had a quick temper and expected everything to be a particular way. Her parents were both tough with love, but each had their tender moments. Her dad tending to her when she was sick and sitting by her bedside telling her stories and her mother bundling them up during a snowstorm to get to the toy store because she'd promised her a doll she had really wanted. While her parents worked, her father having started his own taxi business, Maria took on a surrogate mother role for her brother and sister and she enjoyed spending time with her siblings. In 2000, her parents had another child, another boy, 
and that same year, her parents decided to pull her from the nearby public school and send her to an all-girls Islamic school in Scarborough, where her parents said she would learn about her religion and culture. Maria pushed back, but her opinion didn't matter. She had a hard time adjusting to life at the new school. For her family, at home, Islam was more cultural than it was religious, and at the new school, there were no windows, and she was required to wear a hijab and abaya over Western-style clothing, which is what she was accustomed to. Recess was only 15 minutes long, and girls weren't allowed to spend the time outside. Her new high school curriculum covered the standard high school subjects, but there was a heavy emphasis on Islamic studies, as well as reading the Quran and praying five times a day. Maria was still in communication with her friends from public school, and would get discouraged when they would talk about new clothes, going to the mall, and boys and dating. She was beginning to hate her life, so much so that she complained to her parents that she spent all of her free time commuting almost two, three hours a day to get to school. To help the situation, her parents moved the entire family to Scarborough so she would be closer to school so the complaining would stop. That didn't help Maria's situation. She began to skip school to hang out in coffee shops or go to the mall. The school didn't tolerate this behavior and she was suspended. She didn't tell her parents at first she would pretend to go to school and get back to the school grounds in time to be picked up by her father. But eventually a letter was sent to her home and her parents were furious. Maria felt like a caged bird. Her parents' expectations were of tradition in Pakistan, while she just wanted to be a Canadian teenager. Out of protest, she stopped studying and ended up failing all of her classes. She was constantly in trouble at school, and after another meeting, at school with her father about her performance, he asked her what she wanted. She told him she wanted to go to public school, and her parents surprisingly relented under the conditions that she had to improve her grades and she had to wear a hijab. Maria started grade 11 back at public school, and she felt like she had re-entered the real world. While she was prohibited from wearing low-cut jeans and going to parties or on dates, she was able to join the volleyball and track teams, and she could hang out at Tim Hortons with her friends during lunch. Academically, she was still failing at her schoolwork. At the Islamic school, they had such a strong focus on religion that she had fallen behind in all other subjects. One day at school, she decided to remove her hijab and would tell her parents that she was studying after school. But really, she was going to hang out with friends in a social circle that included both boys and girls. She wasn't allowed to have male friends. One day, her mother drove by the library where she was supposed to be studying, only to find that the library was closed. This caused a huge blowout between her and her parents. Maria started to get more defiant, skipping school more often and coming home later and later. She felt so suffocated that she just wanted as much space as she could get, no matter how limited. One day, she didn't know who, but someone told her parents she had been spotted without her hijab, and that was the last straw. Her parents feared that her younger siblings would follow in her bad habits, so they announced they were moving back to Pakistan. Her father's plan was to travel back and forth between Pakistan and Canada, where now he employed at least a dozen drivers in his taxi fleet. At the end of her grade 11 year, the family moved to Lahore, the nation's second largest city. Maria's new surroundings in her home country felt so foreign. Cars and people and sounds were everywhere. People walked in a million directions, weaving in and out of way too much traffic. It was the most controlled chaos she had ever seen and nothing like she was used to. 
Maria was enrolled in an Urdu-speaking government school, even though she couldn't write a single word of the language. She met her huge extended family, and because they were from Canada, they were treated like celebrities. Everyone wanted to know them, speak to them, and everyone treated them like royalty. Her parents started getting marriage proposals on her behalf. Strangers would show up at the house and say they knew they had a daughter who was of age. Her parents at first politely entertained the notions, but nothing serious went on beyond that. At 17 years of age, Maria expected her parents to protect her from the proposals, from behavior and customs that seemed so strange. Her mother's one sister had been spending a lot of time with the family, and her son Sonny was 22. Her aunt kept insisting that Maria and Sonny get married, and her mother would brush off the idea. Her aunt insisted that Maria didn't need to go to school. She was too pretty for work. For in Pakistan, from the moment a girl is born, her life is set on a single-minded path toward marriage. Maria wanted to work and to earn her own money. Money, she would later figure out, was freedom. Eventually, the tables turned, and her parents sat her down and told her she had been promised to her cousin from when she was a baby. She was told that the family was wealthy and that she would never have to worry about anything. Maria pleaded that she didn't want to marry her cousin, marry a stranger. All she wanted was to return to Canada to finish high school. Her father then told her that if she didn't marry him, he would never speak to her again. Sonny and Maria were married in January of 2005, and Maria wasn't involved in any of the arrangements. After the marriage, Maria moved into Sonny's family's home, where 24 people in total lived. There were separate quarters for his parents, his brothers and their families, and her and Sonny. She was glad to be away from her parents, and Sonny's family was supportive of her wish to continue her education, even offering to help cover the expenses and to have a driver take her to and from school. Maria knew little about boys or kissing or even sex, and she was filled with anxiety leading up to her wedding night. Sunny was gentle and kind enough, so that eased her fears, and deep down she knew she had made a vow that she wanted to uphold. One year and three months after her marriage, her parents decided they were moving back to Canada. Her younger siblings, unaccustomed to the food and water, were constantly sick and were having a very hard time in school. Maria was crushed that her family was leaving her behind. At only 18 years old, she was left in a foreign country with a man she barely knew. Sonny's family, she said, treated her like a queen. Her husband worked in the family business of building and managing shopping malls, and Maria became friends with her sisters-in-law. Sonny and Maria had very little alone time, and their ideas of romance differed. She wanted an emotional connection, and he showered her with gifts. Even though they were different, they formed a pleasant bond, and the marriage she initially resisted was growing on her, and she could see the security and the stability that it promised. When exams rolled around, Maria failed all her classes. The final exams were in Urdu, which she didn't understand. Her in-laws asked why she was going to school if she was just going to fail. She asked to go to an American or British school, but they refused, saying they were too expensive. It would be Urdu-speaking school or nothing, so she dropped out. One day, her mother-in-law came to ask for her passport, ID, and jewelry, which she said she would keep safe, but she would realize later that this was an effort to keep her under their control. She wasn't even allowed to have a cell phone and could only call home from the house line, from which everyone around could hear her conversations. Eventually, her mother-in-law insisted it was time for her to clean, cook, and do chores, 
which her husband encouraged as she would be running a household of her own one day. Maria liked keeping busy, but wasn't a fan of the domesticity of her daily routine. One day, Maria saw messages from other women popping up on her husband's phone, flirtatious messages. Maria called one of the women back, who claimed she didn't know that Sonny was married and promised to not have contact with him again. Maria confronted Sonny, who said that it was normal for men with money to have extramarital affairs and that wives usually look the other way. Maria did it first and thought he would stop, but he didn't. They got caught in an endless cycle of her seeing a message, confronting him about it, and him downplaying the situation. She tried to speak to her mother and sisters-in-law, who all denied that Sonny would do anything of the sort. Maria realized her life was a lying husband and a family who would back him up. She felt any chance of real love developing for him destroyed. Maria began to bury herself in Sidney Sheldon novels she found at a bookstore near the house. Sheldon's fearless female characters were leaving an impression on her consciousness. Maria and Sonny continued to fight and his true colors were coming to light. He would push her up against walls, punch the walls near her face, and one day hurled a remote control at her head. She felt powerless. One night she locked herself in the bathroom, broke a glass, took a shard, and started cutting herself. Red droplets began to soak her nightgown. Blood poured out, but she hadn't cut any veins. Her husband and father-in-law broke the door down and yanked the glass from her hand. They called the family doctor to mend the wounds. But what Maria really needed was a therapist, someone to listen. She spoke to her parents on the phone, but couldn't tell them the whole story, as her in-laws listened in on the call, but they could tell she was distressed. They decided she would return to Toronto for a couple months. Before leaving the airport, she overheard Sonny on the phone with another woman he was planning to meet up with. Maria was crushed again and thought to herself that she was done. She was never coming back. Maria was overjoyed to see her family at the airport with open arms. Her younger siblings were so grown that she hardly recognized them, and even her mother had tears in her eyes. She told her parents about life, but left out the attempted suicide and the violent cheating husband part. She reconnected with her old friends, who were all now in university. She told her parents she wanted to graduate high school. They said she needed Sonny's blessing, so she lied and said that he was okay with it. She got a tutor and took night classes, and was determined to pass grade 12 as failing was definitely not an option. She saw the high school diploma as a way of peace. She would still be a wife, but a wife with a diploma. When her parents realized she was dodging calls from Sonny, she decided to tell them everything. They were horrified, but didn't think it was grounds for separation. Instead of sending her back to Pakistan, her parents decided to sponsor Sonny to come to Canada so they could keep an eye on the relationship. The sight of seeing Sonny again filled Maria with panic, but she was glad she didn't need to return to Pakistan. Maria graduated high school with good enough grades and quietly applied to a handful of universities for which she was accepted to all, York, Ryerson, and the University of Toronto. Her parents were appalled, saying that she would need to start having children soon but she would eventually convince them to let her attend class at U of T's Scarborough campus two days a week. Slowly, she started upping her class load, eventually doing four days a week. She wanted to catch up to her peers. Maria decided on a double major of political science and English with dreams of one day going to law school. She got a job at the school library and had wonderful friends. She joined a dance team and even ran for student union, which she won. Her life was on track, and she was happy. 
Near the end of her first year at university, Sunny's immigration application was accepted. He would arrive in Toronto a few weeks later. They had spoken very little the past year, and she was dreading seeing him again. She was afraid his arrival would ruin the life that she had built for herself. When they picked him up at the airport, she wouldn't even look at him. Now that they were on her turf with her family, Sunny reverted to showering her with gifts. He was showing off for her parents, which made Maria uncomfortable. Maria was sharing her childhood bedroom with her husband, and her personal life was shrinking. She stopped spending extra time at school and with friends, and instead came home after class to cook and to clean. Eventually, Sunny and Maria got an apartment of her own, where they had separate bedrooms, and Maria installed a lock on her door. She was afraid his anger would trigger and he would explode. One day, she came home to find the door unlocked and broken, and her things rifled through. This was no surprise, as he was always going through her purse, laptop, and phone to see who she was talking to. She went straight to Home Depot to get a stronger lock. As her graduation day approached, Sunny announced that she would need to give up thoughts of a career. It was time to start having children, which meant we had to stop sleeping in separate rooms. She reminded him of the lying and the cheating and the lack of trust. She asked how she could be expected to bring a child into something so unhealthy. All the anger Sunny had been holding back erupted. He started shouting and smashed a glass table in their living room. Afraid he would hit her, she grabbed her purse and ran for the car. He followed her, but she managed to get inside the car and lock the doors. She turned her phone off and began to drive aimlessly. She had nowhere to go. She knew Sunny would call her parents and they would convince her to return home. She pulled the car over to the side of the road, sobbed, and fell asleep. When she woke, it was dark, and she considered going to a shelter. She turned her phone on, and there were dozens of missed calls and voicemail messages from her mother. She was crying and apologizing, asking her to come home. There were messages from her siblings as well, wanting to know that she was okay. She called her mother and told her she couldn't live in fear anymore. Her mother told her to come home and that she wouldn't have to go back and that they would protect her. When she returned to her family home, her father demanded that she return to her husband, while her siblings showered her with hugs. She looked her father square in the face and said that she wasn't going back. Her siblings even stood up for her. They said if he couldn't support her, they would all leave. That shocked their father so much that he relented. She crawled into her old bed and fell asleep. Over the next few months, Sonny came to the house to try and visit, but her parents turned him away. He even sent family and friends on his behalf to ask for a second chance, but Maria didn't back down. She finished her university exams, and after the last one, she sat outside and cried, knowing that she would soon be a university graduate. At the time she shared her story with Toronto Life, Maria had never heard of a divorced Pakistani person. Her parents even warned her that no Pakistani man would marry a divorcee. Simply put, she could have her freedom, but it would come at a steep price. She accepted the fate because being alone was better than being afraid. Her parents had to choose too. Would they support her or lose her? They chose to support her. Maria officially moved back in with her family and got a job at an insurance company and started saving her money. She spent all her free time with her siblings and a close circle of friends. When she was 27, she met a man named Syad through a mutual friend. He was a Pakistani-American and lived in California. They started dating long distance. He was kind, patient, and most importantly, he accepted Maria for who she was. In 2017, he proposed, and she moved to San Jose. 
this time, Maria fully participated in her wedding plans. She eventually got a job as an admin assistant at Stanford and was eventually promoted to research admin, where she helped professors secure grants. She gave many presentations and found she had a knack for public speaking. In 2020, she started her own business, helping people develop public speaking skills. She was helping people find their voices, like she had needed to do in years past. In 2021, Maria started a master's degree in clinical psychology, so she could better help people overcome their anxieties. We're not here to say that one kind of romantic relationship is better than the other. We just wanted to share that relationships are different, and while there are bad situations and good situations, we just hope everyone out there is being able to live their best life on their own terms. And if you like what you heard today, if you found today's episode to be interesting and informative, please remember to like, follow, or subscribe to Mixed DNA Podcast wherever you're listening from right now. And if you're listening to us via Apple Podcasts, please leave a positive review or at least one that's constructive. We'd really appreciate it as likes, follows, and reviews help to ensure we're reaching as wide an audience as possible. Also remember to follow us on social media, Facebook or Instagram at Mixed DNA Podcast where each week we post relevant information about the content we focused on for each week's podcast episode. Also check us out online at mixeddna.ca, where you can find all of our past episodes, links to research that helped us with each episode, our Mixed Monday features, info about Melissa and myself, and our online storefront where you can purchase Mixed DNA merchandise with various mixed race forward designs on t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, and so much more. Thanks again for tuning in, everyone, and you'll hear from us again next week. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.